Well, good morning, church. It is so very good to see you this morning, whether you are here with us in person or you're watching online. As always, I want to tell you that I love and appreciate you all so very much. I hope that you had a wonderful uh, summer day, I mean winter day yesterday with, with your family and with your friends. I was, I was thinking about a story. I, I wanted to share a funny story because this series needs a little bit of levity. I should have included more funny stories because of how heavy this subject is. But I was thinking about one of the, the funniest experiences that I had as a child at Christmas was my family went to, to visit aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents. And when we got to my uncle's house that Christmas, it was a couple days before Christmas, we got to their house, everybody, all the aunts and uncles and cousins, went to go see a movie without us. I'm not bitter, I promise. Uh, but we, we got there, and we were a little disappointed that they had all gone to see a movie without us. So we let ourselves into the house, and there were a few presents, there's six or seven presents under the tree already, and we thought... We're gonna we're gonna get even, um, and so we 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 took the presents from under the tree and we hid them upstairs, and then we took a, a roll of of wrapping paper and we tore up little bits and put it under the Christmas tree, and we thought when they come in, they're, they're gonna be shocked, they're gonna not gonna know what happened, and then we went to dinner, so my family went to dinner. And then when we got back, all the aunts and uncles and cousins had all gotten back to the house, and we walked in, and we were waiting for them to say, oh, we don't know what happened, all these presents are gone, and there's wrapping paper, but they didn't say a word. All the mess was cleaned up. The, the presents that we had taken and hidden were still hidden, and they had been replaced by, with newly wrapped presents, and nobody said anything about it. And so we weren't going to say anything about it. They weren't saying anything about it. So a couple days go by. It's Christmas morning. More presents have showed up under the tree. The presents we hid, they're still hidden. Nobody's talking about it. And so we all exchange gifts, and my family opens up the presents that had been given to us, chewed up dog toys. So what happened was they had come back from the movie. They, of course, knew exactly what happened. They knew that it was us. They cleaned up the mess. They wrapped up, chewed up dog toys, put them under the tree to replace the ones that had been stolen. But the, the kicker is that it was our gifts we stole. We hid our own presents. And I tell that story, one, because I think it's funny, but two, because I actually think that's what, as Christians... So often we've done. We've hidden our own gifts. We've hidden what God has given to us. We, we stole away the richness and the truth and the, the huge gift in the story of Jesus. We've stolen that away, we've hidden that away, and we've replaced it with something far smaller. Jesus, the story about Jesus is the story of God bringing his son to reign as king. It is, the, it is the story of a brand new reality breaking into the midst of this reality. It is epic and it permeates every area of our life. But we've stolen that story away, we've hidden it away, and we've replaced it with the story about Jesus starting a new religion, and it's so much more than that. And the, the implications of that for our life, especially when we endure grief and crisis and trial and trauma, is that we don't have the story necessary to support us 
through crisis because we took the story that God gave us, the reality that God gave us, the truth that God gave us about the reign of Jesus as king, and we hid that story away, and we've simply made Jesus the founder of a new religion. And it's so much more than that. Jesus can give us so much more hope and so much more joy and so much more comfort than we give him credit for. And we look at Matthew's account of the gospel. The, the last couple weeks we've been in Luke, and if you have time this weekend, maybe just compare the way that Luke tells the story of Jesus' birth and the way that Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth and kind of notice what's, what's missing from each account and what's included in which account and how they're telling this story because Matthew's whole point from the beginning of his account to the end is Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And Jesus has authority over everything in heaven and on earth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to King Jesus. Jesus is king. So if you have your Bible, look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, we don't know how, how long what Matthew is about to tell us, how long after Jesus was born did these things take place, but it says, after he was born in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, there's so many interesting things, and that's the thing about Matthew's account is it's so dense. It is so rich. There is so much truth that is packed into just a few verses. So these wise men, when you think of wise men, don't think about wise the way we tend to use the word wise. It's not about being intelligent or about being smart. These wise men from the East were like magicians or like interpreters of dreams or like sorcerers or, or people that were astrologers. And why is it significant? Why is it that Matthew is telling us this? Because actually, I think it actually foreshadows who we are. It foreshadows everything that the prophet said would be true about the Messiah. The prophet said that the people from the nations the Gentile people will willingly come to the feet of the Messiah. They will willingly come to the Messiah and say, rule over us. We want to be subject to you. So here we have these Gentiles, these unlikely people who have come to find and worship the one who has been born king of the Jews. Now, it's not it doesn't say he was born to be the king of the Jews. He was born king of the Jews. He was born king. It's not something he's going to grab. It's not something he's going to seize. It's not something he's going to attain. It's something that he is. He is king. And these Gentiles from the east, they recognized that, and they came to worship him. Verse 3, it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, Herod the Great, history will tell us that Herod the Great was one of the most powerful, wealthiest men in the world. And here's one of the most powerful, wealthy men in the world who is supposed to be ruling over the Jewish people, but 
when he hears this word about the one who has been born king, he is greatly, what? Troubled. And so are all of those who are in power and authority with him. And Matthew wants us to understand that, not just so that we understand why Herod does what he does, but I think Matthew wants us to understand that Herod should be afraid. Herod should be trembling in his sandals. He should be greatly afraid because Jesus is king. And God is putting on notice everyone else, all of the other rulers and powers and authority, and says, your time is coming. You've been put on notice. I have anointed my king, and you aren't him. I've anointed my king, and you aren't him. You you remember the story about David and Saul? How Saul was the king, and then when David was anointed king, how did Saul take that? Not too well, right? He was jealous. He was angry. He tried to kill David. This is is what you do. This is what evil people do when their, their authority and their power is challenged and threatened. And God is putting on notice all the rulers and powers and authorities of the world and saying, my son is king. I'm anointing my son as king. He's going to rule. The power and the authority are going to be his. Verse 4, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now again, there's so, so much packed into Matthew's account. If you really were to read Matthew's account the way it should be read, every time in your Bible it has a little footnote, a little asterisk, or a little number, or something in the the margin, or something underneath that says, this is a quote from Micah chapter 5, you'd go and you'd not only read that verse, but you'd read the context. Because Matthew is painting a picture for us. Maybe he assumes you're already pretty familiar with these prophecies. Maybe he assumes that the people who are reading his, his book are already familiar with what the prophets say about the Messiah. And what is it, in addition to he'll be born in Bethlehem, that Micah had to say about the coming Messiah? Here's what Micah said in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 of Micah. Many nations shall come. Isn't that what we were just saying? Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. These are the kinds of things that the prophets had to say that this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen when God sends his anointed one, when God sends his Messiah, when his king rules. Not only will he rule over and shepherd Israel, but people from other nations and tribes and tongues, ethnicities, Every group in the world, there will be people coming from every group in the world saying, 
teach me your ways. Teach me your ways. And they will, they will turn their weapons, their swords and spears, into farming tools. And to say, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done killing. I'm done destroying. I'm done making war. I'm done with the walls that are dividing us. I'm done with these battles. I'm done with these fights. I'm done with these wars. And they will bow at the feet of God's anointed king and say, teach me your ways. I want to do your will. I want to submit myself to you. I want to surrender myself to you. And isn't that what we see already beginning to transpire in these wise men from the east that here the nations are coming to the feet of the Messiah even while he's an infant saying, Father, God, teach me your ways. Have your Messiah, have your king teach me your ways. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. I wish, I wish Herod had been sincere in that, don't you? I wish that he really did want to worship Jesus and bow before him and tell the Lord, teach me your ways. I'm ready to turn my weapons into farming tools. I'm ready to be done fighting. I'm ready to be done with battling. I'm ready to be done with war. I'm ready to be done oppressing. I'm, I'm ready to be done enslaving. I'm ready to be done seeking my own glory and fortune and fame. I'm done with all of that. Teach me your ways. But Herod, of course, had no intention of worshiping Jesus or bowing before him or asking the Lord through him to teach him his ways. But it says in verse 9, after listening to the king, the, the wise men went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. See? See, this is, this is exactly what, what will be transpiring from this moment on. For, for thousands and thousands of years, until right now at this very moment, these foreigners, these Gentiles, these people from another group, from another country, have come exceedingly joyful and glad to bow at the feet of the Messiah and to bring him gifts befitting a king, to surrender to him their treasure and their worship and their obedience. And these are our spiritual forebearers, aren't they? Because I'm not, ethnically speaking, a Jewish person. You may be or may not be, but most of us are probably Gentile people. And this is who we are. We are travelers from another country and another group. And we have come to the Messiah with great joy, exceedingly glad. And we've bowed before him and we've said to God, teach me your ways. Let me walk in your paths. I'm done fighting. I'm done battling. I'm done learning war. I'm ready to turn my weapons into farming tools. 
This is what Jesus taught and what Jesus did, and this is what transpired, and it's what the prophet said would always happen, that the Messiah would rule over the nations, that the nations would come to him and bow before him and worship him and learn to walk in his ways. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now again, again, when, when Matthew quotes from the Old Testament, we should go and read that, right? We should go and read that passage. And if we were to turn over to Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, we see that Hosea isn't really predicting about the Messiah. In fact, Hosea is remembering the Exodus. He's remembering, God is remembering through the prophet about God bringing Israel out of Egypt. Hosea 11.1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So why is it that Matthew is quoting Hosea, who's talking about Israel and talking about the Exodus? Isn't it, isn't it beautiful what Matthew is doing? What the Spirit is doing through Matthew? And calling to our remembrance what God did with his people and how God delivered his people from Egypt. And so, so Matthew is saying that something like the Exodus is about to transpire, and that Jesus is not only like a new Moses who's going to deliver his people out of slavery and out of oppression and out of death and out of destruction, not only is Jesus like a new Moses, according to Matthew, Jesus is like the embodiment of Israel. Jesus is Israel embodied. And think about what, what's going to happen in Jesus' life. Jesus is not only going to be delivered out of the hands of death out of Bethlehem and into Egypt, but he's going to come out of Egypt, he's going to cross through the water, and he's going to be tempted and tried and tested for a period of, of 40, right? Just like Israel was brought safely out of Egypt, they crossed through the water, and for 40 years they were in the wilderness. Jesus is going to be delivered out of death He's going to be brought out of Egypt. He's going to cross through the water of his baptism. And he's going to spend 40 periods of time, 40 days in the wilderness. Only Jesus is the perfect Israel, the faithful Israel, the true Israel, the true son of God. So Matthew is weaving all of these stories together to say Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the embodiment of Israel. And if you want to be delivered like God delivered Israel out of the Exodus or out of Egypt in the Exodus, you have to attach yourself to the new Israel, to Jesus, to the new Moses. To the, to the deliverer, to the king, to the one who's going to save his people. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. 
Again, if we're familiar with the story of Scripture, this might remind us about what happened in the Exodus. Do you remember when when the Israelites, when they were enslaved in Egypt, they were becoming so powerful that Pharaoh felt like his power was being threatened by them? Just like Herod now feels that his power is being threatened by this, this child who's been born king. And Pharaoh, hundreds and hundreds of years before, felt like his power was threatened by Israel. And so he slaughtered the male children in Egypt. And now Herod is doing likewise and slaughtering the male children in Bethlehem. This is what the powers and the rulers and the authorities of this evil age do when their power and authority and rule and reign are threatened. It's what Pharaoh did. It's what Herod did. This is is the work of Satan, isn't it? This is what Satan does when his rule and reign and authority and power are challenged. They lash out in violence. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were, or because they are, no more. Now, now he's drawing our mind to a different event. He's drawing our mind to the prophet Jeremiah, who talked about this city of Ramah, And Ramah was right outside of Jerusalem, and it was a staging area for the Babylonian captivity. So when the the Babylonian slaves, or when the Jewish Israelite slaves were taken out of Jerusalem and transported to Babylon, Ramah was one of the last cities they were. And Jeremiah said, this is what the mothers are like. This is what Rachel is like, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a mother, to be an aunt or a grandmother or any relative who who watches your children taken in chains to a foreign country to be enslaved? And, And of course, they said, I don't want any of your comfort. I don't want any words. What I want are my children back. And don't you know that the mothers in Bethlehem felt the same way? And the mothers in Egypt, when their children were killed, felt the same way. And every mother who's ever lost a child, and every father who's ever lost a child, and every sibling who's ever lost a sibling, and every parent, every child, every uncle, every aunt, every grandparent, every one of us who've ever lost a friend, this is the way we feel, refusing to be comforted. I don't want your words. I want my kid back. I want my loved one back. But you see, the the beauty of what Matthew is doing here in quoting from Jeremiah, if we'll just take a second and go to Jeremiah and look at the context, again, we find so much hope. Jeremiah chapter 31 is is about what God is going to do for his people and what he has done and is doing and will do through Jesus. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 13, then shall the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness 
for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. And it's in this context that he goes on to say, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentations and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And verse 16, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. See what what Matthew is doing in telling us this story this way? He's saying not only, not only was God going to bring back future generations of the children of Israel back to Israel from Babylonian captivity, but God's going to bring back all of his people. Amen? God's going to bring back all of his people. Because we all know the pain of the mothers in Bethlehem. We all know the, the pain of the, the women and the men, the brothers and the sisters, the parents and the grandparents in Ramah. We know the pain, refusing to be comforted. I don't want your words. I want reunion. I want my loved ones back. And that's what Jeremiah says. That's what God says through Jeremiah to his people. I will give you your children back. Trust me. Trust me. I will bring your children back. And that's what Matthew is saying Jesus is doing. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God's anointed king. Jesus is the new Moses who will do what? He will bring peace. He'll teach the, the Gentiles to turn their weapons into farming tools, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to love their enemies. He will end the exile. He will turn our mourning into joy. He will exchange our sorrow for gladness. He will bring back those we've lost. Now, Satan is still doing what Satan does. Satan, through all of the powers and the authorities and of this evil age, is still lashing out. He's still threatened. He still wants to steal the people we love. He still wants to destroy the things that we love. He's still lashing out. But it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is king. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the one to bring peace. Jesus is the one to end the exile. Jesus is the one to turn our mourning into joy. Jesus is the one to exchange our sorrow for gladness. Jesus is the one to bring back those we've lost. And if we've ever known that pain of refusing to be comforted, to say, I don't want words. I just want my loved ones back then Jesus is the only one who can bring us that comfort. Jesus and only Jesus, only Jesus can truly comfort the grieving because only Jesus can bring back those we've lost. It's what the gospel is all about. 
is that this new reality has begun. This new reality of resurrection has already begun. This new reality of Jesus' reign has already begun. That in the resurrection of Jesus, God is keeping his promises. And that God will do for all of his people what he has done for Jesus. Only Jesus can truly give us comfort when we've lost those we love because only Jesus can bring them back. Only Jesus can resurrect the dead. Only Jesus can give us life and immortality. Only Jesus can give us a brand new imperishable body. Only Jesus and only through Jesus is God keeping his promises. So only Jesus is the one who can comfort us. Everyone else can only offer us words. Jesus offers us life. Jesus offers us resurrection. Jesus offers to bring us back from the dead. Jesus offers to give us back those we've lost. But lest we forget that Jesus isn't just a savior, Jesus is king. There's a lot of us, and if we're real honest, we, we really like the idea of Jesus being our savior. We really like the idea of Jesus taking away our sins and preparing us a, a place in God's house. We really like the idea of Jesus bringing us salvation. We're not so fond of the whole king thing. We're not so fond of the whole submission thing. We're not so fond of the whole obedience thing. We're not so fond of doing what these wise men did at bowing before him, surrendering to him our life and our treasure and our everything and saying to the Lord, teach me your ways. Teach me to walk in your ways. I believe that there's a brand new reality that there's a brand new king, that all the other kings and all the other powers and all the other rulers and all the other authorities have been put on notice. And Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And I believe that as these Gentile nations, that we should come to the feet of Jesus and say, teach us, teach us to turn the other cheek, teach us to go the extra mile, teach us to love our enemies, teach us to turn our weapons into farming tools. Teach us to be your people. And as he teaches us, he comforts us. Because Satan still hasn't accepted the fact that Jesus is in charge. And Jesus, or Satan rather, is still lashing out in fear and anger, frustration and disobedience. And we still continue to lose those we love. But Jesus promises to give life to all of his people, and in giving us life, he gives us hope, and he gives us comfort, but he also gives us a new way to live our lives. So the application is simple, is to do what the wise men did, come to Jesus, surrender yourself to Jesus, not just your treasure, but your life, your all, your being, surrender to him, and know that only Jesus can truly comfort the grieving, because only Jesus can bring back those we've lost. If we can help you to come to Jesus, now's a great opportunity to come forward as we stand and sing this song.